from a literary standpoint, Genesis chapter 12 is when the book of Genesis gives us what might be called a close-up. Up until this point in the story of Genesis, we have had, yes, glimpses into small places, but everything that's been going on has had worldwide import and impact. We begin with Adam and Eve and, and their family. And yes, again, it's a small group of people, but it's the parents of us all. Uh, we move on to uh, these sort of uh, explosion of that family into various families until we get to the place where Noah and his family are the focus. But we also know that outside the doors of the ark, the whole world is being put to death. So we know what's going on around the globe. Uh, then we have the Tower of Babel that we've talked about. And again, this is all, all of the people gathered together as one. And then that splits up. And now we come to Genesis chapter 12. And God calls out Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. Now our focus is a close-up. Now we're going to follow for 20-some uh, chapters the life of the patriarch, Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Abraham, called out by God and with whom God makes covenant. That covenant is coming up in the future. For now, uh, I want to just mention that God calls him out and tells him, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And this is one of those places, friends, where it's really important that we remember that Abraham was a man. Oh, I know none of you are going to deny that. There's no uh, a party uh, or religion trying to argue for the deity of Abraham. Uh, but we tend to, again, think of people like Abraham as somehow different from you and me. I want you to imagine, if you would, how you would feel. If God came and spoke to you, remember, Abraham was not coming out of a God-fearing family. But he hears a voice, the voice of God, and the voice of God tells him, not just, I'm going to be with you, not just, hey, I'm God, let me tell you about how this all works. No, he tells him, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave everything that you're familiar with. And I want you to go with me. You remember in the story of Noah, especially, uh, it seems like we spent a lot of time with this idea when we were little kids studying the life of Noah, uh, that during Noah's, uh, that, that time period when Noah is building the ark, that Noah's neighbors uh, mocked him. You know, I mean, here's a guy building a giant boat and building a giant boat uh, with no uh, uh, water uh, nearby. And yet there he goes, building, building, building for years and years and years and years and years. It must have looked crazy. Well, Abraham too. 
Imagine Abraham starting to pack up his things. And his neighbors and his friends come along and say, where are you going? And he says, well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I, I don't know. Well, why are you going? Well, God told me to. He told you to, yes. And where did he say he was taking him? He didn't say. <laughs> he just said to go where he tells me. And that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Okay, Abraham, have you forgotten to take your meds? No, Abraham didn't forget to take his meds. Abraham believed God, trusted God, and obeyed God. Abraham departs from Ur the Chaldees and heads to the land that God would show him. Now, one of the things that we're told uh, about uh, Abraham in this chapter is different places that Abraham uh, visited in the land of Canaan. He was a sojourner all of his life, uh, and we're told he went this place and he went to that place. And that sort of reminds us of the vital importance of remembering who the original author was and who the original audience was. I don't want you to get the idea that uh, while Moses is leading the children of Israel uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land, getting ready to, to do the conquest of Canaan, I don't want you to get the idea that God says, oh, by the way, Moses, I've got another job for you. I know you're busy. I know you've got two million people under your care. I know you've got those two million people out here in the desert. But I got another job for you. I want you to be our historian. I want you to write down the story of how we got from uh, nothing to here. And Moses says, oh, okay. And he writes down the story. I mean, it's absolutely true that Moses is giving us the truth when he writes the book of Genesis. No question about it. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everything that's given to him is without error. But that doesn't undo the fact that Moses has a perfectly legitimate, God-given motive. And to help you understand that, I want you, again, to, to put on your imagination and imagine this. Imagine you're one of those two million people. You have witnessed these great plagues that God has sent to destroy Pharaoh and Egypt. You've watched as you walked between walls of water and watched those walls come tumbling down on Pharaoh's chariots. You've seen all sorts of amazing things. But you're still you. You're still obviously uh, uncomfortable and uncertain out here in the wilderness. You're not uh, afraid to grumble and complain. And you're curious and perhaps nervous. Now, wait a minute. This land sounds wonderful. But how are we going to get it? There are people living there. And I I'm pretty sure they're not going to want us to just take over and move in. Well, Moses is trying to help that original audience get an understanding of how God had given that land to them. Remember that Abraham is their father. I, you know, I, 
I want us to get that. The Bible says that Abraham is the father of the faithful. That if we trust in the finished work of Christ, then we are the children of Abraham. Some of you may remember that old uh, children's song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Remember that song? There's a reason we sing that song. We sing that song, friends, to remember that the Bible isn't some old book from a distant land, from a foreign people, that we happen to have a copy and a translation of. No, friends, the Bible is our family history. Can you see the difference in perspective between those two ways of looking at the Bible? Can you see how understanding the truth, the biblical truth, that the Bible is our family history will help us to understand its importance, will give us a hunger to study it? Do you understand that? This is our story, our father Abraham. This is what happened to our ancestors. You know, I, I'm uh, Scots-Irish. The Sproles are a sept of the McFarlane clan. And God has blessed me with a, a kilt in our uh, McFarlane tartan. And I have a McFarlane tie and a McFarlane bow tie. And, and that whole uh, identity that I have uh, is something that matters to me. But it pales into comparison to the glorious truth that by God's grace, I've been made a child of Abraham. And again, now this story is my story. Now that applies to us as well. I'm afraid we, you know, we lack uh, a hunger for the fullness of the promise. We are also on a journey we have also been set free from a slave master. We have also been called out by the living God. And we are being led to a land flowing with milk and honey. We're not there yet, but we are on our way. And we're supposed to believe that we're going to get there not because our father Abraham walked around the land that's going to be ours, but because our brother, our elder brother, the firstborn of the new creation, he has walked into the promised land. He is the firstborn 
of the new creation. So I want you, as you read this description of Abraham, and it's going to continue after this chapter, there's going to be sojourning all through the story of Abraham. As you read about him going to this place and going to that place and going to this other place, I want you to remember that Jesus has walked the land that is ours because it has been given to him. Now, we have to turn from this moment of hope and faith and finish chapter 12 by entering into uh, one of, if not the greatest failures in Abraham's life. But I think it's important for us to remember that this failure happened after God called him, after he heeded God, after he surrendered to God. What does Abraham do? Well, famine comes upon the land. They go down to Egypt. And Abram says to his wife, Sarai, now sister, <laughs> which she was his half-sister, sister, uh, when we get there, if they think that I'm your husband, they're going to kill me because you're so beautiful. They're going to want you for themselves. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell them that I'm your sister, or your brother rather, and they'll be kind to me. And so they go down into the land and that's exactly what happens. Sarah makes that lie. Abraham makes that lie. And Abram is treated well. He is, uh, hosted by Pharaoh and gifted by Pharaoh and things go badly for Pharaoh. God sends judgment against Pharaoh and Pharaoh is none too pleased with Abraham. Now, again, remember that audience. Those are the people who are well familiar with how Pharaoh was a danger to their future and to their family. It was a Pharaoh, a later Pharaoh to be sure, but it was a Pharaoh who ordered the death of the male children of the Hebrews. The future posterity of the family of the Jews was endangered by Pharaoh. And so it is here in this story. But the end result, remembering this is out of Abram's sin, but the end result is that Abram and Sarai leave Egypt more prosperous than they went in. They have, in a manner of speaking, because Pharaoh freely gave to Abram, they have plundered the Egyptians, just like the children of Israel. Pharaoh's position of power, which puts God's people in a position of fear, is overcome by God's power, and now God's people are not only safe, but prosperous and blessed. God sends them out, Abram and Sarai, 
laden down with camels and with goats and with sheep and with other things. And this, despite Abram and Sarah's sin. We've talked about this before, friends, and I want you to see it again. This propensity, this, this pattern where God blesses and God draws near and God promises to be our God. And in the midst of that, we sin against him. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. That's what happened with Noah and his wine. And here it happens once again with Abram and Sarai. And each time, God delivers. God rescues. God is the hero. And God's people are made safe once again. That's how God works. We have been called out. We have been rescued. We have been blessed. And we fail to trust God. Do you think that if God can rescue Abram and Sarai from Pharaoh with a bunch of Pharaoh's stuff after Abram's sin, what do you think God could do if Abram hadn't sinned? What do you think would have happened if he'd have walked in there and said, this is my wife, Sarai? I don't know. I do know this. God knows. And he's in control. And he is trustworthy. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We have been made righteous in God's sight because he has given us the gift of faith such that we, by his spirit, believe him and rest in the provision that Christ has made for us. And we have peace with God. And we've been adopted by God. And we have been promised that we will inherit the whole of the earth. And yet we still struggle to trust him. We still come up with our own sinful strategies where we think we know best how to make it work out best. Where we think... God is not trustworthy. You know that Abraham knew who is sovereign over famines. You know, as they went down to Egypt, they, that Abram knew that God had ordained this. But just as he was going to do again with Hagar, Abram is going to fail to trust God. Friends, my point here is not to scold you, not to scold myself, but to recognize you and me in this picture, to recognize our failures so that we would repent and continually turn back to the one who rescues us. I want us 
to be like our father Abraham. Not when he fails to believe God, but when he, by God's grace, does believe God. And friends, when we fail to believe God, I want us to be like our father Abraham and return to our father in heaven.